0: This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell.
1: As I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and as promised just before Christmas um, we are going to be diving into another instalment of the Die Hard franchise with 1990s Die Hard 2.
0: When we did the first Die Hard movie as part of our Merry Podmus season, we did have an idea that we would gradually work our way through the entire franchise of Die Hard. So, for your delectation, we're going for the second movie, which is, surprise, surprise, called Die Hard 2, and it was directed by Renny Harlin.
1: Of course, Renny Harlin also directed Deep Blue Sea, which we have covered on this podcast also, And he got the director gig for Die Hard 2 after his work on A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, so a bit of trivia for you there. The screenplay was again by uh, Stephen E. D'Souza, who wrote Die Hard and Commando, and it was also co written by Doug Richardson, who went on to write Bad Boys. Die Hard 2 is also based upon a novel but a different novel to First Die Hard. This novel is called 58 Minutes. It was written in 1987. However, in 58 Minutes, the main character is not John McClane, but a character called Frank Malone, and he's a divorced NYPD captain awaiting the arrival of his daughter from California to New York City. And in the novel, the airport is JFK. However, in Die Hard 2, the setting of the airport is Washington International Airport, And John McClane is awaiting the arrival of his wife, Holly, um, ready for the Christmas festivities. So I will just give a brief synopsis and then we'll get into our thoughts on the popular sequel to an even more popular action blockbuster. So the synopsis is written by Graham Roy on IMDb. Once again, New York cop John McClane is in the wrong place at the wrong time. This time, he's waiting for his wife's plane to arrive at Washington's Dulles Airport when he uncovers a plot to sabotage the airport's landing system. The criminals wish to free a drug baron being extradited to America for trial by holding the airport to ransom until they are all safely escape on another plane. However, if they'd known that Holly McLean was on a flight home to the very airport they were hijacking, they would have picked another day.
0: Yeah, this time... John McLean arrives at the airport to pick somebody up. He doesn't start the movie by landing at the airport and going somewhere else. Die Hard 2 picks enough bits up from the original but tries to open it out a little bit. We're not stuck in one place this time. They've opened it out into an entire airport and the surrounding area and you've got more bad guys this time. They've upped the body count a little bit I mean, you can say that they've upped their body count massively because at one point an entire plane load of people buys it. But if you're talking about individual bits of violence, there's a few more than Die Hard. It doesn't really ramp it up to a ridiculous degree in terms of how many people get killed by McLean. But they have amped up the action quite a bit. There are more chasers. The shootout sequences are a bit more heightened. It's kind of edging towards ridiculous in a way that Die Hard often wasn't, but it's still quite fun. I do like Die Hard 2 as a movie. I remember going to see it at the cinema and thinking it was okay at the time. I think it was overshadowed by the first one. And I was thinking, well, how can it top the first one? And it didn't really. But I think, again, it's one of these movies that over the years, when you rewatch it with a bit of a clearer head, and then set it against the side of the rest of the franchise. I think this is pretty good stuff. It stands up pretty well against the rest of the franchise. There are certain people that say it's better than the first one. No, it's not better than the first one, but it is pretty damn good. Also, it did have a few problems in the UK with the certificate. It was originally going to be an 18, but I think the distributors wanted a 15 instead so that it would widen the audience. So quite a lot of the violence was turned down. There are certain sequences in which they've removed frames of violence or they've removed sort of a couple of seconds out. There's, there's quite a few bits in the movie where if you watch the uncut version, which I'm pretty sure the one on Disney Plus is uncut, if you watch that one, I think you'll probably guess all the places that had to have cuts for a UK 15 certificate.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure the version that we watched on Disney Plus did honour all the bloodshed and had that 18 certificate probably in place. Um, so for me, Die Hard 2 was a first time viewing and I absolutely love the original. That's the only one that I'd seen up until this point because I'm very, very late to the Die Hard party, but I'm enjoying myself along the way. I'm not sure if I'll be saying that by the end of this uh, mini series we're doing, but who knows? It basically follows the same formula of John McClane being in the wrong place at the wrong time yet again, which we've previously stated in the intro, but it unapologetically runs with it. With this film, there is no pretense and it is just capitalising on the success of the first one and it is giving the audience more action, violence and more quick-witted quips from McClane which allow Bruce Willis to ad-lib and improvise yet again. He was um, always encouraged to do that and there's always you know, great one-liners He's such a fun character, and he's just an enjoyable character to watch and to go through um, all this kind of terror with, I guess, throughout the whole movie. And it's very much one of those popcorn survival action movies where it's just an adrenaline rush to sit through. I think you kind of know some bits will be predictable, but you just kind of look forward to embracing all the carnage that it presents. So, yeah, I really did enjoy Die Hard 2. I wasn't sure what I was going to get going into it because um, the first one is such a classic and I absolutely love it. So I was a little apprehensive going but I've heard this is not the worst of the sequel. So I was not too worried. (laughs) But again, all they have done is taken the formula that works and made it just bigger and brasher. But I think, you know, it's got some intense moments in it, but it's not anywhere near as intense as the first one. And I don't think the villains in this are... Like, they, they do not hold a candle to Hans Gruber in the first one. But they're still, you know, decent action movie villains, and the stakes are raised. I think the bit that unsettled me was when they take down the British plane. That was um pretty terrifying, especially if you have flying anxiety. Like, I wouldn't recommend watching this movie
0: before boarding a plane (laughs) anyway yeah i have a fear of flying and this movie does nothing to lessen my fear of getting on a plane the idea is fairly chilling that the uh they tamper with the instruments to make the plane think that the ground is 200 meters higher than it actually is or is it 200 feet anyway it's it's enough to crash the plane yeah, they've got to crash the British plane, of course, haven't they? I mean, there's a lot of American planes up in the sky, but I think if you're down an American plane in an American movie, like, God, you know, the outrage. So it's like, well, who can we kill off? Who, who, who won't mind getting sacrificed? Oh the Brits. They'll be all right. Well, let's kill a couple hundred Brits off. They'll, you know, they'll just shrug it off and say, well, you know, it was bound to happen sooner or later. They even make some joke on the British plane saying that they like British Rail, that they, you know, they get you there, but they're never on time. But they don't get there this time. There's some quite recognisable faces in there. There's Colm Meany flying the plane. So if you know Colm Meany from like Star Trek Next Generation and a ton of other stuff like Con Air. So he's in there. They do bring a lot of the characters back from the first one. You get Holly McLean, obviously she's on the plane. You get Dick Thornburg who is stuck on the same plane with Holly McLean. So you get quite a lot of good banter between those. You also get uh, Chekhov's taser on that plane. So there's a taser that gets introduced very early on in the proceedings, and there's an old woman that's got it, and you just think, that taser's going to get used before the end of the movie, and I'm pretty sure that taser's going to get used on Dick Thornburg. Spoiler alert, it does. You get Al Powell. Unfortunately, Al Powell is in a different location, so you only get a couple of scenes where John McLean is trying to get a fax through to Al Powell's police department, so you don't get them together on screen, which is a bit of a shame, really. But I guess if you had them all back together, you'd think, well, why are they all in Washington? So it's got to fit within the confines of the plot. I agree with you about the villains. Nobody can hold a candle tans group. He's the best villain of all time, as far as I'm concerned. What they have done is they've taken quite a risk with the villain in this one, because he's the... Complete opposite to Hans Gruber. He's not flamboyant. He's a military man. He's very efficient. He's a man of few words. He gets the job done. So they've gone completely the other way. But William Sadler is good as the bad guy. He's chilling in quite a restrained way. There are quite a few fairly recognizable faces within his team. Robert Patrick is one of the bad guys. Went on to bid a T one thousand in Terminator two. He doesn't last all that long, but he's there. And you've got uh, John Amos, who you'll probably recognise from Coming to America, who is one of the other army guys. He's one of the guys drafted in to stop William Sadler's dastardly plan. But there's something going on. There's a double cross going on there. Now, apparently, John Amos and Bruce Willis didn't really see eye to eye on set. Now, I'm not really sure what was going on there but John Amos has actually said to Bruce Willis in the past that he's not going to humiliate him again. So who knows what went on there? I mean, I didn't look into it too much because I'm not a big fan of on-set arguments and I'm not a massive fan of looking into on-set arguments either, but something went off there. And you can kind of see a little bit of the animosity on screen as well. There's a little bit of tension between his and Bruce Willis's character. I think it adds to the drama, but... In terms of it being a happy set, maybe there was the odd flashpoint on there.
1: Yeah, I think it um, would have definitely contributed to the quality of the performances. So maybe if they didn't get on on set, it's not entirely a bad thing in the long run when you watch the movie back. So the movie was released in the USA on the 3rd of July 1990 and the 24th of August in the UK. However, we must pose this question, a very important question. Is Die Hard 2... 2- A Christmas movie. (laughs) Now, I'm inclined to say absolutely yes, just as much as the first one. It's, again, set on Christmas Eve. The whole reason for the airport is people getting together um, for the holidays. In the trailer, they have Jingle Bell Rock played intermittently between the uh, shady goings-on of the villains. And then again, much like the first one, Let It Snow um, plays at the end credits. And actually, in terms of aesthetic, this one is even more Christmassy because it features snow. Like it is completely snow drenched throughout. And I think that raises the stakes as well Um, with all the action going on and the fighting.
0: Yeah, definitely a Christmas no, movie. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it has to be a Christmas movie. Uh, it's as much of a Christmas movie as Die Hard. And you're right, the setting it in a snowbound location makes it all the more christmassy according to the trivia they had a lot of problem getting the snow there they expected it to be snowy and it wasn't so they were having to transport snow in for some of the sequences which must have been an absolute nightmare i think the technicalities of the shoot made it very very difficult you don't see that on screen because everything is very sleek and it all hangs together really really well but if you're having to transport snowing from outside to get all these chase sequences and it's got to be the worst thing the way you actually go somewhere thinking that the weather's going to be terrible and it isn't then i think there was another set of sequences where they weren't expecting the weather to be terrible and it was i think the elements conspired against this movie from start to finish you watch this and you think yeah it's slick it's professional it's a great movie but i think um it was a bit of a slog for both cast and crew from the sounds of it.
1: However, it all paid off in the end. The budget they had to work with was between 62 and $70 million. They actually grossed $240 million at the box office, and it even outdid the success of the original. So that was pretty cool. I think, obviously, it was riding on the hype of the original, and people were probably really excited to see another John McClane adventure on the big screen. The critics, however, gave it a bit of mixed feedback. Um, the general consensus was that it didn't achieve the greatness of the original, but it was an entertaining movie all the same. So, I no, I would agree with that. I mean, I, as much as I enjoyed it and it was great to see um, some of the original characters back and then see them, like, in a new setting and um, in a new conflict as well, I enjoyed it. It's It's just definitely one of those movies that you just switch brain off and just go with it I think the thing is because you know what to expect with this one yeah whereas the first one you wouldn't I think that that's where it comes in where sequels can kind of fall on the wayside against their predecessors just because you know what's coming you know what to expect and even though we've got a different setting it's very much going to be of same ilk we're gonna see Jonathan take down some bad guys but what is quite funny throughout the whole movie is like all the other cops just don't listen to him and you just think how dumb are you guys this guy has been through this he knows what he's doing you know he's saved a building full of people only two years prior so I just don't understand like why everyone can't cut him some slack and just believe in him and let him get on with things because in the end he's going to triumph So there's all that kind of conflict going on as well within the movie. So he's also not just contending with villains, he's contending with very difficult police as well.
0: Yeah, the cops are absolutely rubbish in this movie. I mean, they do get a chance to redeem themselves a little bit at the end, but they just don't want to do their jobs and they're just officious and bureaucratic. And at one point, McLean demonstrates that a machine gun has got blanks in it by firing at the head of the police in the airport. None of the other cops bat an eyelid. Why didn't they shoot him? That's that's the only bit that I've got a question with, in Die Hard 2 because he empties a clip of automatic rounds on their boss and they just stand around watching him doing it. And then, okay, it's obvious after a few seconds that he isn't dead because they're just firing blanks. But it's a room full of cops, not one shot at McLean. It just seems weird that bit. But I guess... It's done for effect, and at the time, you probably don't even realise it. I mean, yeah, I've watched it numerous times now, and it's only on recent watches that I thought, well, it's not much of a reaction to seeing your boss get, well, virtually killed. I mean, you've got Dennis France as Carmine Lorenzo, who's the, who's the head of the police of the airport. Dennis France was great in NYPD Blue, playing a kind of a, a similar character, but more heightened in wow. this movie. Dennis France is great in pretty much everything. And he does get a chance to redeem himself at the end. He does tear McLean's parking ticket up as well, which is like the whole thing that kicks all this off. McLean's car is getting towed at the start and things just get worse from there. It's also set in the commando universe because the deposed dictator is flying out of Valverde, which is the same place that Arnie goes to rescue his daughter from. In commander. Valverde's got a terrible legacy of having crap presidents. I've got no idea what Valverde must be like, but it just seems to be run by corrupt people. I mean it's it's worse than the UK. <laughs> and
1: that's saying a lot, <laughs> let's be honest there. Yeah, I think with this movie as well, you could nitpick into it, but it's one that you just suspended. Your- disbelief with it's it's there to entertain and the whole scenario at the beginning of the film where um his car's being towed away and he's having that kind of dispute with the police officer and it's very much it's got such a tongue in cheek kind of tone to it as well. It it just does not take itself seriously. And that's what I think's enjoyable about it. It's I think it's balances the comedy alongside the action and all the spectacular set pieces really well. So it's just the full package in that respect. So I don't know if this would be classed as a little bit of a movie urban legend as such, but it's quite interesting. So is the movie called simply Die Hard 2, or does it take on its tagline, Die Hard 2, Die Harder? Because when it was released, the first poster that came out for the movie had Die Harder in huge lettering at the top of the poster, and then below it in smaller writing, it was Die Hard 2. So somewhere down the line, it's been marketed with this die harder subtitle, and then other times it's simply die hard too. So depending on which release that you you purchase, so it's a bit of a, a strange one because it, whether it's like audiences have taken that, it's because when the movie starts itself, it is just die hard too. That's what comes yeah. up on the screen like immediately. It just like starts and that's it. You're in
0: yeah. with
1: that title yeah. card. So I think it's quite an interesting one in terms of how. Over the years, people have like, I don't know whether they say fabricated it as such that it's got this other title or whether it's just marketing confusion.
0: Well, when I went to see it at the cinema in the preceding weeks, it was trailered pretty much in front of every movie I went to see. And the UK trailer did say Die Hard 2, Die Harder. So it was on the original UK trailer. And I guess that we thought that there'd be a third movie called Die Hardest, which didn't quite pan out. I mean, there is a third movie, but they didn't go with Die Hardest because I think they dropped the Die Harder thing. I mean, it's quite a fun title, Die Harder, because he does die harder in the second one. But you're right. I think over the years they've dropped the subtitle and it is just known as Die Hard 2. It is a lot of fun. Considering it is a lot of fun, though, some of the violence is extremely nasty. I think there are bits in this movie that take you back more than anything in the first movie. There's somebody gets an icicle in the eye, which is really nasty. The poor, unfortunate guy that ends up in Colonel Grant's team because he's replacing some guy who's got appendicitis. But Colonel Grant, he's a bad one. He's the double cross. So his team are in league with... William Sadler's bunch and unfortunately the guy that's replaced the villainous guy that gets his throat cut extremely graphically. Now in the UK cinema version you saw none of that you just saw it about to happen, guy falls forward, end of. If you see it in the uncut version it's really horrible I mean it's a great effect I mean practical effect is fantastic but it's one of the more graphic throughout slittings I've seen in any movie, be it action or horror or whatever.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's all for your viewing pleasure on Disney+. It's so nice of Disney just to keep in all that gore for us. I'm really uh, appreciative of that. And, of course, the famous iconic line from Die Hard, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, of course it features in this. It kind of comes in quite near the end, really. John McClane does utter the famous line, it wouldn't be a die-hard movie without it. However, there were some made-for-TV versions that were cutting out the swearing. And this has kind of amused me, because they used different voice actors. I suppose instead of actually getting the actors on set to just say different lines just so they could use it when re-editing the film, they just got dubbing. And it does not sound like the actors that you see on screen, so it's a little bit jarring. And instead of yippee ki motherfucker, he goes, Yippee-ki-yay, mister Falcon. And we there's n- no idea who this Mr. Falcon is, but I saw this as a fact on my Go To Guy, Minty Comedic Arts' um, video about top 10 things about Die Hard. Die Hard 2, sorry. So that was just hilarious.
0: The only mention of Falcon is that Esperanza's codename is Falcon. But Bruce Willis' character would not know that. Because it's all kind of military code words. So it's kind of accurate, but it's something that the character wouldn't have any knowledge of. And the fact is that it is not the same guy. That's definitely not Bruce Willis. I've seen that version of Die Hard 2 with all the edits in it. It's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. It almost makes it unwatchable in places, unless you like terrible dubbing. You can just see that it's had no care lavished on it at all, it's just like, right, let's just churn out a TV version of this, and some movies, they shoot TV versions at the same time, so they, they use alternate takes, and they have other takes with no foul language in, or they turn down the violence, or they, they, they use different bits of the movie. The TV version of Die Hard 2, it's just that somebody's got some people in a sound booth and just said, right, just dub over this, it's absolutely appalling and whoever did it should be ashamed of themselves but at least now most of the times that it's screened if you're going to see it late in the evening it's usually uncut which is a good thing because there was a time during I think it was like the the late 90s and the sort of early noughties where there was a big thing about less swearing on tv so you got a lot of movies that had all the profanity cut out of it. I remember seeing a version of Robocop, which was absolutely laughable. If you saw the ITV version of Robocop that was the censored one, there was no point watching it. There was hardly any violence in it, and all of the swearing was cut out, and it made a complete nonsense of the entire movie. Do we want to treat people like adults? No, no, we won't. Let's just cut all the violence and the swearing out, and the nudity as well. Even though we screen it at 10 in the evening, somebody's going to go crazy if if they hear the word fuck once it's like this is how it this is how it was at one point on british tv it's just looking back now it's absolutely ridiculous that that happened but it did
1: see the one that sticks in my mind so i'm I'm assuming this would have been like late 90s early noughties a friend of mine had taped grease off the tv and they had actually cut the entire number of look at me i'm sandra d because it has references there's a bit of profanity and references to smoking and that type of thing and i believe this was probably aired like maybe six or seven in the evening but itv completely cut it out and i just thought that's bizarre because you're not getting the full movie and i realized like for years as well that the version of greece i had was from the bbc and then when i've actually watched it as an adult i've realized like how much they cut out and it's crazy because. So for years, I would be watching Greece, but not realising I hadn't actually seen the completely unedited, true f- version of it. And I, it's absolutely crazy. And I think, going back to what you say saying about The Watershed, I mean, yeah, if you're going to sit down on a Saturday night and chill and watch an action movie, you're just going to want to see something that's completely 18-rated, got all the language, all the nudity, all the violence in it. But yeah, that it, it is... Like literally treating audiences like idiots. I mean, who who is this movie meant for? Is it for like children to watch, like the PG version?
0: Well, I think that was kind of partly the thing where it was, oh, well, what if a kid walks in the room? It's like, well, it's 10 o'clock at night. Your kids should be in bed, to be perfectly honest. They shouldn't be watching this. So the fact that, oh, you know, you've got this mythical sort of seven, eight year old kid that just blunders into the room during Die Hard 2, it's like, well, control your kids. Or, Explain to them that it's just effects and makeup, and people are not really dying, and you shouldn't say fuck. But you know, it's it, this is, but this is how it was. I mean, the UK has got a history of treating adults like complete idiots, and this was just one thing. At least Diar two now, we can watch it in all its unexpurgated glory on a platform that's also got Toy Story, and um, has, has it got Bambi? It must have got Bambi on it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. <laughs> But uh, I you Bambi's brutal in its own way. I mean, nobody's going to get over Bambi's mum getting shot at the start. Absolutely I mean, that's...
1: not. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, definitely not. But yeah, it's doing back to controlling your kids. I was that kid that would have stayed up and watched those movies really late at night. But has it done me any harm? I don't think so.
0: No, I don't think so at all.
1: <laughs> I, mean, bit... I would be here sat now talking to you. Yeah, exactly. With my yeah. Love yeah. I love for movies, if I hadn't been uh, exposed to it from a young age, but as you say, there's no harm in it. It's um, but it's a very weird time, and I think it would be very interesting to look back at lots of different movies from that period when they were on TV and see like how they were butchered into kind of yeah. censorship
0: hell. Yeah, the bit at the end though. Oh, well, this is not really a censorship thing. There's a bit at the end where. Bruce Willis is staggering around shouting Holly because he can't find his wife reminded me of Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining where he's he's shouting Danny and it's getting more and more incoherent and I'm thinking like was that a nod to The Shining? Because at the end of it, I mean he starts shouting Holly and you can tell that he's shouting Holly but then it's just kind of, it's just moans at the end of it it's very much like Nicholson when he's going around the maze at the end of The Shining it's probably a coincidence but I suppose he's kind of leaning into the method there where he's just getting more and more agitated that he can't find his wife. She's clearly okay because the plane's landed and she was on the plane and he's been talking to her about 15 minutes previously. So again, (laughs) this is what happens when you see Die Hard 2 too many times. You start looking into the stuff that probably no audience member would ever think about questioning.
1: Yeah, I think that bit, I did find it kind of cheesy towards the end, but I guess, you know, he'd been through a highly emotional situation and, again, the potential of losing his wife like, to tragic circumstances. So I guess that was just his way of showcasing his emotion for the yeah. situation. So we can we can forgive him for that. So the movie has a 7.1 out of 10 rating on IMDb. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 69% tomato meter and an audience score of 70%. And I'm just going to go back and compare that with the original, which was a 94% audience score and tomato meter and then 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb. So, you know, quite close, really, Um, um, definitely on the IMDb one. But I think, to be fair, coming in as a sequel, I think that's quite respectable, the uh, 70 69%.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the scars are probably near enough spot on. As a sequel, it's pretty good. I think at the time, I think everybody said, well, you know, what are they doing with this? It doesn't really work. The fact that they haven't got him sort of stuck in one place. Well, you don't want to see him stuck in a building again for the second movie. I mean, that's just ridiculous because you're just having a retread of the first one. I like the fact that they open it out a bit, I like the fact that there's more locations. I like the fact that he drafts in more characters. It's not just him. So he's got people on his side and he's using people around the airport to help him get what he wants. I mean, some of them, some of the people that you would only find in the movies, there's the guy who's kind of in the tunnel somewhere who's got all the maps of the airport. And you know, they think, well, somebody would have found him by now and thrown him off the property. But forget all of that. It is just an action movie. You've got to suspend some disbelief. When he's leaping over the tanker in the skidoo and there's an explosion and he gets blown off this sort of jet ski for snow and then he rolls down the hillside and there's not a scratch on him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got to suspend disbelief when stuff like that happens. There's another bit of crowd pleasing violence at the end where somebody gets sucked through a jet engine. Theoretically, that's quite upsetting, but it's done in a very cartoony way. Again, that was cut for the UK Cinema release. The actual guy going through the jet engine wasn't cut, but they changed the sound effect because apparently it was too splattery. So they they turned the sound down for the UK cinema release.
1: Yeah, that was a pretty cool death scene. And it's one of those moments where you're kind of like, yes, when it happens, he's like, you know, fist pumping the air, cheering at the screen. It's a very, as you say, crowd-pleasing moment after all the ordeal that John McClone has had to go through. It's like, yes, finally, we're going to, get rid of all these bad guys you know it's it's very much just that sort of movie it, it's very well structured and you know what you're going to get you've got the hero you've got the villains they're going to fight it out explosions will happen deaths will happen a bit of comedy will happen a little bit of romance as well maybe at the end of ends with a bit of romance but that's all you kind of want in it and it's, it's just so much fun and i'm glad that i've seen the sequel now because i had a great time with it. As I say I don't love it as much as the first one. I don't think I'd rewatch it as much as I'd rewatch the first one. But I'm, as I say, I'm glad I've seen it, and I hear that I'm in for a bit of a treat with the third instalment because I heard that one's kind of up there with the original. But that's that's just what I've heard on the grapevine. So I will make my own mind up once I'm able to watch it.
0: Yeah, you're right. Two isn't as quotable as the first one, and it doesn't have the memorable characters of the first one, but it could be far worse. I mean, as sequels go, this is right up there. Generally, I mean, if you're going to have sequels to be action movies, the second ones are usually pretty terrible. I mean, okay, you got Lethal Weapon. The second Lethal Weapon's pretty good, but usually they try to push it too far and fail. At least this one. It's big, it's dumb, but it's also entertaining. And for the time, I mean, if you're saying seventy million dollars, yeah, I guess at the time that was a lot of money, but these days. Could you make Die Hard 2 for $70 million? I don't think so, because of the massive scale of the whole thing. You get a lot of bang for your buck, quite literally. I think it's a pretty decent movie, Die Hard 2. I think that it's coming for a lot of unnecessary stick over the years. And I think just because it's not the first one. Well, it was never going to be the first one. Like, Just embrace the differences. Rennie Harling went on to direct some pretty good stuff after that, as you said. You know, he did Deep Blue Sea, he did Long Kiss Goodnight, did Cliffhanger. His career's tailed off a bit since. But he's a guy who obviously knows how to shoot action because they gave him the reins of this off the back of a fairly low-budget horror movie. So they obviously saw something in his directorial talent. There was another story as well that said somebody had seen the dailies from a movie is also directed sort of fairly close to Die Hard 2, which called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Now, I don't know if they're taking the piss about this because I quite like The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, but I know quite a lot of people who hate it. So I'm not sure that somebody watched that movie and thought, yeah, this guy could direct Die Hard 2 off the back of that. I think it's more likely to be the Nightmare on Elm Street one that got him the gig than Adventures of Ford Fairlane. As much as I enjoy it, I can appreciate that it's a movie that a lot of people would look at it and go, that, well, well, that piece of shit, he directed that. I'm glad that Rennie got the gig. He also did a really good horror movie called Prison, which was another Empire Pictures gig. We're going on about Empire Pictures last time with Troll that's a really effective horror movie starring a young Viggo Mortensen as well. So if you haven't seen Prison, that's really worth checking out. It's a really atmospheric horror movie. Just going to bat for Rennie Harley, Certainly his early movies anyway.
1: Yeah, that's a movie I haven't seen, so you never know. Will it turn up on this podcast? Quite possibly. But yeah, no, you're right. I did um, read up that it was because of Nightmare on Elm Street 4 that he got the gig for Die Hard 2 because it was considered the most ambitious of the Elm Street franchise at the time. So that was the reason behind that. So let us know what you think of Die Hard. Where does it rank in your Die Hard um, countdown?
0: Yeah.
1: I'll have to tell you at the end when I've seen all five movies. Yeah, Three more to go. I'm excited. Well... I think I'm excited for the next one. I'm going to lower expectations for the other two movies because I've not heard as great things. But I'm excited to see where the franchise goes. I'm still up to seeing a bit more John McClane. So, yeah, I'm going to look forward to that.
0: So until we cover the third one, which will be in a few weeks' time, I think, we can just say, yippee-yay, Mr Falcon. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 54 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening.
1: And if you enjoyed this content and would like to check out any more of our episodes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast.
0: Next episode, we've got a classic movie and we've also got a guest. Looking forward to this one.
1: Yeah, me too. I don't know what to expect um, with the film that's been chosen. It is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Full Sound, which is available on Amazon Prime. And our special guest is none other than Lauren McIntyre.
0: I've recorded a couple of things with Lauren, so it should be an entertaining chat. Strange take on Dr. Caligari, maybe, because it's a modern update of the actual original source material. So let's see how that goes.
1: Yeah, looking forward to checking it out. Hopefully I won't regret saying
0: that. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and pod bead.